How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Ben Doransky, who is the CEO and co-founder of Beam. Ben, welcome to the show. How's it going? Thanks so much, Matt. I'm really excited to be here. I've enjoyed the podcast uh, as a listener, and it's a real honor to be on your show. Oh, I, I'm very excited to have you on as well, and I, and I appreciate that you're, that you're a listener. Well, hopefully we got a bunch of people listening to this awesome episode too, and with that, let's just kind of get into it. For people that don't know, what is Beam? Boy, that gets complicated. When you're talking about business-to-business SaaS software, I've got to start with kind of the story. So um, let me set it up this way. If you've ever watched Breaking Bad or Ozark, you know that the crime is sort of the exciting part of it, but the way that people often get caught is because they have to do something with the proceeds of that crime so that they can spend it. And that's called money laundering. Any business that moves money from one point to another and holds on to it in between has a legal obligation to monitor all of its transactions for suspicious activity. That can be money laundering, like I mentioned, human trafficking, terrorist financing, uh, significant at-scale drug operations, um, child exploitation, some really bad stuff. Uh, And since there's this legal obligation to monitor all of these things, there's, of course, penalties associated with missing them. So if you're a financial institution and you inadvertently help a criminal organization launder money, you can be subject to fines for that. And those fines are enormous. They can range into the billions or even multi-billion dollars. Um, On record, there are fines in the seven to nine billion dollar range and even in excess of that outside of the U.S. Um, Just last year in 2019, Uh, globally, there were almost $9 billion in anti-money laundering fines. So this is really high stakes for the financial institutions involved. Now, those financial institutions can range from little tiny fintechs that just got started all the way up to great big banks. Uh, But they all have the same problem. They have to monitor all their transactions for suspicious activity. So when you do that, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. But historically, Uh, Companies have done this with a great big rule set that just looks for suspicious transactions based on really rudimentary formulas. Beam was designed to find a new solution for that problem using new data sources, recent advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning, and automation for the significant workflows that surround this and that our customers have to deal with every day. So at the end of the day, what Beam is, what we're making, is an end-to-end compliance solution that lives in the cloud. It's very modern software with modern workflows, team-based, and easy for people to use. Uh, We're disrupting a space that has sort of slowly grown over the course of 30 years into an industry that's dominated by a couple of older players that are that are uh, offering software to the marketplace that needs to be installed locally. Uh, it's not API based. Uh, it's slow. Uh, it doesn't work on Macs, uh, and it's difficult for people to use. So we've built a better set of tools for the detection, uh, prevention, and reporting of suspicious activity for financial institutions. So I don't know why I want to ask this question because I feel like I should I should know the answer, but like Fire I don't. Will. 
how can you just kind of take us inside uh, i guess like your algorithms and and to i'd love, just love to hear what makes um activity potentially fraudulent like, like what what is some yeah like what's what's fishy yeah. behavior that your yet your software would catch i'm just curious what that looks for sure. like for sure um first i want to draw a little bit of a division between fraud and compliance um they live in the same world and about a third of all the suspicious activity reports at an average institution start with fraud because that's the crime and then extracting the money from the system in the case of fraud is actually laundering that money so you kind of have both things happening in the same place so the fraud department and the compliance department often work closely together they're frequently under the same umbrella of risk but there is a little bit of a difference there um, and that's really important from an algorithmic detection perspective because with fraud you are guaranteed to get a response back eventually if somebody steals your credit card and pretends to be Matt uh, and buys something, you're eventually going to get the credit card statement and call your credit card company and say, I never bought this thing. And at that point, the credit card company knows that it missed an event of fraud. And so it can write algorithms that essentially self-correct and look for more things like those things that were true in the case of your stolen credit card for other people later. It's less easy to do that in compliance because a good money laundering operation should never signal to the bank that something's going on. In other words, it can live undetected for years and years and years. They never call customer service. There's never any problem with the account. Money flows in, money flows out, and everything goes smoothly. That's how the organization wants it to run. So you're looking for something different. Um, generally, what we're looking for are outliers things that mathematically are further from the center of a cluster of similar transactions. So at a really rudimentary level, in the current state of software, there will be a rule that says, if one of our customers, let's say Matt, deposits more than $1,000 in cash at an ATM or with a teller, cue that up for human review. And then a person who's sitting in an operations center in the Midwest or overseas, someplace where they can afford to hire sometimes thousands of people to look at these hits all day long, uh, will cue that up and look at it and say, okay, well, let's look at Matt's transaction history. Uh, I don't know, it doesn't really conclude anything. So we're gonna go look at Matt's home value on Zillow or his apartment if he's renting one. And we're gonna look at his occupation on LinkedIn. And so they'll go out and pull different data sources and then make a decision. And in 99 out of 100 cases at most financial institutions, they conclude that that is not suspicious activity. It just gets closed. So that was, uh, for that person, anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes of their day looking into something that ultimately they concluded wasn't suspicious. There's about a 99% false positive rate in this right now. So that's how traditionally this stuff's been detected. What Beam's doing differently is we're looking at a profile of Matt, and we're comparing that profile of Matt today who just made this $1,000 cash deposit, both to Matt from a year ago and to people that are similarly situated to Matt. And so we're looking for that transaction as a, a, a sort of mathematical equation 
in distance from center, whereas the most normal, predictable, least suspicious transactions are right at the middle of the cluster. And your transaction was outside of the middle, but maybe not so far outside that it's something that a person needed to take a look at. So using that kind of algorithmic detection and sort of advances in machine learning, we can cut the false positive rate around 30%, which means 30% less time that analysts are wasting looking at people who aren't doing anything suspicious at all. That's about half of what we're doing. The other half of what we're doing is improving the workflow of those analysts by bringing in those outside data sources that they'd go look at right away and using them as part of our calculation. So when that hit happens, you deposit $1,000 in cash, it's gonna get queued up for human review. If you're using Beam at your institution, we've already figured out what your Zillow home value is and what your occupation is, and we've deprioritized that hit. Not gonna tell them not to look at it, but we will say it's unlikely that this is gonna be suspicious because we know what your analysts are gonna go do, and we've done some of it in advance and built that into the system. And we've learned that because there are smart analysts involved. So at the end of the day, this is from a technical perspective, human in the loop machine learning in association with some advanced analytic techniques that allow us to have our customers deploy their critical compliance resources more effectively to combat some really bad things. So how did you, it sounds like a very advanced product. It sounds like very technical and it sounds like very useful to your customers. Like I, I you probably save, I mean, I mean, there's a reason you exist and there's a reason you've gotten to where you've gotten, I guess I, I'm curious, how did you, in the very beginning, did you have such sophisticated machine learning software, et cetera? Like how did you do the job in the beginning? Um, and how has it changed as you got more resources, grew as a bigger company, and were able to invest into like more technical resources? Yeah, we're 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 really gated um, more by data access than anything else. And so, the more data Beam can ingest, the better we are as a company and as an engine. So we work really, um, you know, well with large data sets. Um, but uh, to step back to kind of the origins for a second, uh, and and I think that that's a that's an interesting way to look at this. Um, we're inspired by what happened in fraud, and this really goes back to your earlier question. Uh, in the fraud world, uh, starting a little bit over a decade ago, uh, companies started applying advances in machine learning and algorithmic detection to fraud. And it was super effective uh, to the point where you'd see 80, 90% reductions uh, in fraud rates. Um, I, at the time, was working as the chief compliance officer at Facebook's payment subsidiary, which we created for this specific purpose, Facebook Payments, Inc. So Facebook uh, went out and got money transmitter licenses in the U.S. There's licenses and e-money issuer in Europe. It's the same licensing package as Western Union. It's what I did when I was at Facebook. We said get that set up and build out the compliance team. Um, so uh, I had this phenomenal opportunity to work with an incredibly strong fraud team that was based out of our Austin office. And uh, that team was using these techniques uh, 
teams around the country were doing this too, but I got some you know, real hands-on experience with these techniques there. At the same time, uh, Beam co-founder Andreas Bayer, who's the former head of risk engineering at Zoom PayPal, was experimenting with these techniques uh, in his role there. So we really both reached the same conclusion kind of in parallel paths at a very different kind of company um, that those techniques that were applicable in fraud were applicable in compliance with some not insignificant modifications. Um, toward that end, in fraud, you can let a little bit of fraud in. In fact, you, you have to if you want to process any transactions in order to catch a different kind of or more of that kind of fraud. Um, in machine learning terms, it's called a swap set. You let some bad in in order to catch more of the bad that you're trying to catch. Um, you can't really do that in compliance because you can't let a little bit more terrorist financing in in order to catch some more uh, money laundering. You can't willingly allow your platform to be abused in the same way so you don't get the same signaling back that you do in fraud. But we can use some of those techniques. So we were both exposed to it there and we really started being with the idea that this is exactly what it would be. So there was no point where we were using um, you know, nothing but more rudimentary rule sets. That said, rule sets are the core of any compliance program, and so we do have them built into Beam as well. So I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, you know, with, with this industry, how, how crucial uh, how crucial a company like Beam is or how crucial Beam is exactly. Um, do you think at all about the changing I guess what transactions transactions look like in the future, and really what I'm getting at is I don't know if this is relevant at all to you, but like blockchain, cryptocurrency, yeah. transact like is that how do do you worry about that? Are you prepared for like how do you think about cryptocurrency? Is it on your radar? Is it in the distance? What what do you think about that? It it very much is on our radar, and 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 Beam actually has a patent issued for a cryptocurrency detection algorithm that that we're really excited about. Um, I think there's a there's a neat technique that we're using when we do work with our crypto customers to track um, where wallets uh, send money. Um, so we've got some specific IP around that. Um, we do work with crypto companies. Um, we we I think as a I don't know if we have a, a company position on it from a philosophy perspective. Um, I I like the idea of decentralized currency and have been active in that community in a limited sense since it's relatively early days, and we certainly are paying attention to it. Um, it's, it's hard to say from sort of a company building perspective how much emphasis we're going to put on crypto in the short term. Uh, I think blockchain technology is fascinating. This is such a trope to say, but, but I, I, I can't say that you know, any particular cryptocurrency is necessarily going to be the winner. Um, I do think that decentralized currency, rapid movement of money using distributed ledgers uh, is part of our financial future as, as a global economy. Um, I don't know how much of our global economy ends up relying on this or even if it gets superseded by additional technology in the next decade or two. Um, but it is absolutely here to stay in some capacity. And so we are working with our you know, crypto company partners um, to help them monitor their transactions on a public ledger. Um, along with that, there's, uh, I think, some really interesting future-looking, forward-thinking, uh, you know, trends um, around this space. And I, I will say that while a rudimentary rule set is still kind of at the core 
of any transaction monitoring platform, uh, including Beams, although we've added you know, significant technology on top of that to improve it and help our customers. I think that 10 years from now, the concept of using rules to find bad activity will be a thing of the past. Um, black box models will outperform a rule set right now. The primary reason that you can't use a black box model, and this is an AI term, but there's, there's a scale uh, where on sort of one side of the scale, you have what's called complexity. And that just means, uh, you know, how accurate, how um, how how effective the algorithms are. It's not, I'm I'm not right about this, but I'm using it as a proxy for that, and that's basically what we're talking about. On the other side of the scale is interpretability, and it really is a scale where you add complexity and you lose interpretability. So right now, because we're talking about regulated financial institutions who need to explain to a guy that comes in from the state of wherever they are every year and sits there and says, so have you made any changes to your rule set? And if your answer is, yeah, we tweaked this threshold and this one's a little higher than this one and there's the reasoning for that, it's called model validation, um, then they're gonna be happy. And if you say, yes, we've ripped it out completely and replaced it with an algorithm that none of us understand, including the guy that wrote it, um, that's not gonna fly with most regulators today. So I think it's gonna take a decade for uh, regulators seeing these systems operating in parallel to be comfortable with the idea that this can be handled largely by machines. Um, but I think that in the long run, it can be and it will be. Um, so future thinking, forward thinking vision for Beam, it is that we are the compliance layer of the financial transaction system that powers all commerce on the internet. And I, and I don't see any reason why that can't be true. Um, there's no reason for a bank in a decade to have a room full of analysts looking at false positive after false positive if uh, a, a good detection mechanism can flag the activity and alert the relevant uh, regulators uh, as soon as it occurs. So I don't know if this is necessarily something you spend too much time thinking about, but I, I, I do want to ask, um, I ha I've had a couple of guests on who've been in the fintech world uh, who have mentioned that they've seen kind of the power, the center of gravity for financial products move from the uh, East Coast to the West Coast, like technology is starting to creep into the, the, you know, the, fi the finances, and we're almost building our own Wall Street, you know, in mm -hmm. San Francisco. Do you agree with this, disagree? Do you, ha do you have any thought on what's happening to in the finance world and specifically um, kind of fintech products? Yeah, I, I do. And, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting trend. Um, it's not just that it's geographically shifting, although I believe that that's true too. There are some phenomenal startups based out of New York and Boston that are doing interesting stuff in this space too. And so I don't want to discount the East Coast. Um, West is best. I mean, I'm out here in San Francisco, right? But that's, uh, in terms of rivalry, I, well, I think center of gravity is shifting. That's simply because it was so heavy in, in East Coast before. Um, but, but what we are seeing, and this is really what's driving that, is that uh, part of Beam's thesis, and I think the thesis of our investors as well, is that there are many more fintechs in the world, not only than that the world thinks are fintechs, but even then think they're fintechs themselves. And toward that end, I you know offer the example of Facebook, where I worked for half a decade. Um, 
Facebook has a an equivalently licensed money transmitter to Western Union and PayPal, uh, captive within Facebook. Um, Apple has a licensed money transmitter captive within Apple. So does Amazon. So does Google. And if you move down the stack to smaller but still prominent tech companies, Airbnb is a licensed money transmitter. Um, you know, Uber has uh, talked about its potential exposure on this front, although as far as I know, it has not gone down the licensing path yet. Much smaller companies have as well. And then you've got from the other end, the, the, the less well-established companies, a, a raft of small fintechs that have got seed or angel money that are completely disrupting banking. The challenger banks with a specific purpose that are addressing a specific problem. Um, if you talk to millennials, uh, customers that are, you know, um, kind of moving into the workplace, moving into the marketplace for financial services, I'm shocked at the number that are unbanked not because they can't get a bank account, but simply because they don't need one. They're paying their rent by Venmo. They're, I mean, Venmo is even old guard at this point, right? Like they're paying their rent through, you know, that they're sending payments for stuff to their roommates on Messenger and Facebook or on, you know, individual cash apps. Um, they've got their credit card loaded into their phone. Don't carry a wallet. No need for cash. Um, it's 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 shocking, really, how quickly you see that moving amongst even a beam some of our younger employees uh, and how they view the financial world differently. So uh, I think not only is that trend occurring, I think that it uh, has really reached the tipping point and is probably uh, a long-term true threat to traditional banking in uh, 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 the United States, Europe, and and even into expanding markets where you've seen uh, almost more traction with these things because there was no banking system to disrupt, um, or the banking system to disrupt was so creaky that something like mobile money could take over in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, really cool trend. Uh, I think it's interesting. Uh, for Beam, it's fascinating because all these companies have a compliance obligation now and they're tech companies with no experience with it. And so what they want is a turnkey solution. And that's how we've built out from a, from a stack perspective. That's how we built out the company and, and the software that we're selling. Now that we're on kind of this topic, um, there is some, I, I have one more question kind of on general, I guess, industry level stuff. So you said that even, you know, some of your younger employees think about finance differently. They're using different products. Some aren't paying, you know, they're paying rent through Venmo. Well, yesterday, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to pronounce this right, Plaid got bought by Visa, I'm pretty sure, for like five billion bucks, which is big. It made noise all around, uh, all around um, Twitter and whatnot. Um, do you potentially see this as old guard uh, in a way fighting back or like preparing for the new guard or like can you can you break down for me if you you know even on a light level why visa would pay five billion dollars to kind of be get get a chunk of one of, the, of like this new economy yeah i mean i don't know what visa is going to do with it i i hope that what visa is going to do with it for that price tag is 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 let zach continue to operate it largely independently um because they've built an amazing product at plat 
Uh, it's simple, it's easy to use, it's well documented, and it powers so much transaction activity and bank account activity on the internet right now that if Visa is planning on just bringing it in house and, and doing anything with it other than letting them continue to run that company, I think they'd be making a mistake. Um, that said, it's a it's it many ways that partnership or that relationship that that acquisition makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Visa weirdly doesn't really move much money in and of itself. It is a set of instructions and ledgers that pair acquiring banks and issuing banks uh, via the rails of credit cards. And so if I make a purchase on my Visa card, uh, you know, an annotation is made that we need to deduct some money from somebody's account, we need to credit some money to somebody's account. Um, the money movement associated with that is less important than the fact that Visa has access to and visibility into accounts on two ends of a transaction. And so what Plaid has built is essentially pipes that connect a lot more things than just a bank or a merchant on each end. Plaid is connecting, you know, mortgage apps with the bank where the payment's coming from. It's collect. It's connecting companies that want to make a decision about credit worthiness for a business that's trying to factor its invoices to the company or to to that that company's bank so that the uh, lending company can get visibility into it. It's got so many sort of interesting ways that it's connected financial services organizations, software developers, and banks that given Visa's role in the payment ecosystem, while it seems like it's kind of oil and water with a relatively new startup and a significant behemoth in the financial services space, as big as Platt is, it isn't Visa at this point, um, you know, it actually makes a lot of sense from a, from a sort of, um, I guess, corporate ethos perspective in that they're both connecting things to other things and uh, Visa's ability to, I think, expand where Plaid is is pretty limited without a tech forward company like Plaid involved. So that's both, I guess, my, my hope and fear for it is, is my hope is, is that they, they uh, leverage what Plaid's done and continue to do it. My fear would be that they don't, but I, but I think that it's a, you know, it's a fantastic exit for Zach and the team at Plaid. And um, obviously, you know, really exciting from, from the you know, world of fintechs generally. Uh, I think we're all, you know, kind of holding our breath, hoping to hear that, that you know, everything's going to continue um, as, as it has so far with Plaid, though. I feel like that world of the M&A world just is another beast for me. Like how, like who on the Visa team or what team on the Visa team decided the, the price and like how, that whole world, you know, fascinates me. And maybe one day I'll be on the receiving end of something like that, you know, in like 10 years. So we'll see. But anyways. Well, I can't uh, offer any insight into it. We're still in the building a big company phase and we aren't really thinking about exits, but it's, uh, but it is exciting to uh, see that there is as much activity as there is in the space. Um, and, yeah. uh, and like I said, I, I think that there's a lot of, a, a lot of synergy and potential fit there between those two companies. hundred uh, percent. Well, I want to move the conversation a little bit to uh, kind of jamming on uh, kind of a an activity or a business function that you feel you know somewhat proficient in or very proficient in and we were talking before we hit record and you said kind of a mishmash of like hiring and growth and and, and culture and whatnot and i kind of want to like start there you have a company you know it, it's growing and you also are the ceo which means you've hired a lot of people how do you think about hiring a team 
in growth mode? Um, what do you have a framework for for thinking that through to start on a very high level? Yeah, um, I, I there there's a lot of sort of aphorisms and medium articles that try to lay out what the you know the ten rules for hiring are, and um, I guess I'd start by saying that while this isn't we'll get into some details, but, but while this isn't the most valuable piece of advice in the world, uh, I think it's worth recognizing that uh, founders that have built teams before probably already know how to do this. And they might not be able to articulate it or know why it's working for them. But, you know, growing the team at Facebook when I, it was the first time in my career when I had the opportunity to, to literally handpick every single person that was working on my team, either as directs or downstream reports. And we had very little attrition and a very strong team that we'd put together there. And I think that it was partly that by frankly, just default, because I didn't know any better, uh, I kept a very active hand in hiring. Uh, I interviewed everybody, even if it was, you know, two or three levels away from me when we were making hires. Uh, I wanted to personally vet everybody. And I, and I, and I think that the, the people who do that often think that what they're doing is, uh, picking, uh, you know, people based on, you know, their own set of criteria. But if you're intelligent about it, what you're really doing is viewing that as an opportunity for team building. And so, I'm happy to hire somebody that I think is going to need a lot of mentorship if I have them reporting to somebody who loves mentoring downstream reports. And uh, while it is never the thing that you you know want to spend all your time thinking about, it's much more exciting to go talk to customers. It's much more exciting to even talk to VCs and to you know sort of feel like you're you know building aspects of the business. There is I I, I believe that there is nothing more critical than assembling the right team because this is where we get to your growth part of the question. You will hit the point where as uh, one of the leaders of the, of, of the team and one of the leaders of your company, you don't have the bandwidth to do everything that you want to do. And at that point, you have to have, you know, 5, 10, 20, 50 great people that you're working with closely as you grow who you can say, hey, I've got this problem. I'm not going to be able to help you work through the solution, but I need you to just take today and try to solve it. And we're going to talk again when I'm done with all of my back-to-backs at 5.30 tonight. Um, and if you don't have that confidence in somebody on your team, you'll internalize all of those projects. You're working 20, 22-hour days and nothing's getting done and things are falling apart. And so you have to have that confidence. And I believe that the only way you can have that confidence is if you're actively involved in making those decisions and you're making those decisions with the very intentional purpose of putting together a team that will work well together. Um, you know, that, that said, I, I, I don't, I didn't write the book on this. I mean, I, I, I got, I had the, the, you know, true privilege of working at Facebook when it was small enough that I got to work directly with some phenomenal leaders that spent a lot of time focusing on that team and, you know, say what you will about Facebook and, you know, privacy. And if you don't like that aspect of it, you know, more power to you. I, I, I didn't work on that part of it and I understand those concerns. Um, but from a pure company building perspective, I can't really, really imagine a much better experience than being at Facebook from like a thousand employees to maybe 15,000 or so when I left. Um, just seeing what they did to grow that team, uh, 
I'll tell you this, uh, you can go ahead and leave it in the podcast. I stole a couple of things from Facebook when I left. Uh, they were um, really just ideas. But we have two posters here that are the same posters that I had up on my walls of Facebook. One of them was something Mark said when Facebook crossed a half a billion users. Um, we put up some signs that said our journey is 1% finished, which for a company that was a thousand people and valued where it was at that point was I thought a, a humble approach and the right approach. Uh, we view our journey as, as at best 1% finished and that there's so much more to do every day and that kind of keeps us excited. The other poster that I stole says, used to say Facebook when it was there, here it says nothing at Beam is somebody else's problem. And I think that that one phrase, if you can drive that into your company's DNA and make sure that people understand that is the most important thing you can do at the early stages because you will have an imbalance in workload and time and you have to have a group of people that have each other's backs who will step in and do something and where nobody ever says that's not my job. I love those two this, the two poster ideas, or the, two, the two posters from Facebook. Um, that's great. Uh, two great lessons. Um, I, I, I kind of wondering if you were advising a founder, let's say they recently raised their seed round and uh, they uh, were doing well and they, let's say, let's say they just raised their A round and it's like, great, time to grow. Like you just raised your A round. Is there a, a, a place, I mean, like, I feel like the founders get to this point where like, great, it's, it's time to grow. And then they just work all their, they just work their networks, they work their team, their team's network, et cetera, um, to like find the best talent they can find. Is there a more efficient way to do that? Or is this, is that just it? Is it just like networks, 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 find everyone that you can find? You know, how, how do people think about hiring quickly um, once they got to hit the growth, the, the growth pedal? I, a, cu a couple of things I'd say to that, I guess one is, um, yeah, it's networks, but, but, but you can be more strategic than that. And that is uh, in hiring any individual, one of the considerations that we have, um, and we, we try to articulate this in our, in our internal dialogues, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, is uh, can this person bring other people? Um, and that's particularly true when you're talking about hiring uh, anybody into a leadership position, which you often are if you're, you know, uh, we're about 20 people right now um, when you're when you're the size that we're at, like almost every hire is, you know, either ahead of something because we didn't have anybody in that role before or it's somebody who we believe can grow into that role eventually. So we are trying very consistently to hire leaders. And when you're doing that, one of the questions that I like to ask in interviews is, hey, if we hired you, is there anybody else on your team that you think could join us? And you know, it's an innocuous question, but a lot of times you'll get, yeah, absolutely. Are you guys thinking about this and this? Are you thinking about this? Because I know that, you know, she'd love to join me. And this guy who just joined a few months ago, he'd actually be a better fit here. Uh, I could totally recruit them afterward. Now you do, I'm, I'm a lawyer by training, so I have to say, watch out for this. If you've got somebody who has to sign a non-solicitation agreement when they leave, they can't be part of recruiting those people. Um, but if they don't, or if it's, uh, you know, if that's expired, you know, of course you can. And, and, and there's, you know, you, you can reach out. There are still other people that can do it. So um, yeah, not legal advice, again, for the record, I'm a lawyer. Um, but, uh, but, but I would, you know, work the networks of the people who you are hiring, see if they can bring people with them, especially if they're team leaders. They're 
they're going to have people that are disappointed that they're leaving. I wonder where they went. So that's one. And the other is don't ignore hiring straight out of university or college. Like I, I, I really think that there are master's programs or whatever. Um, I think that uh, a person who is the kind of can do person who will dive in and figure out how to solve a problem. Uh, it doesn't really matter if they've got three years of experience working for a major corporation. Uh, if they're that sort of person and you can establish something that proves that through references with internships that they've done through, you know, just the feeling after five, six hours of conversation with the team that they've convinced you that they're that sort of person, those sorts of people, uh, don't necessarily need on-the-job training. And in fact, it can be detrimental for them to go into a big organization and develop big organization bad habits. Um, we've got some relatively junior employees who just do phenomenal work way beyond their age and experience. Uh, and I think that being open to that then exposes you to going to universities, internship programs. Um, for example, our head of data science, Kevin Fang, works heavily with his, uh, uh, the university he graduated from, was Berkeley for his master's in, in um, data science or engineering. Um, he goes back there and we currently have six interns working in data science at Beam. Um, you know, not all of them will end up joining the company, but some of them will. Uh, we had one come out of a program earlier who's joined us as a full-time employee. I think that looking down uh, at those people who don't have any apparent work experience, but uh, have impressed the team otherwise or have impressed previous managers and other roles uh, can open up uh, uh, some paths in recruiting that you otherwise don't have. And I guess uh, last question on this front, and then we will then I have a couple more questions and we'll wrap it up. Um, what has been one lesson that you, maybe a hard lesson that you've learned in regards to hiring or just people in general um, that if you maybe did it all again, that you would you would uh, do something different, or I guess uh, the biggest thing you've learned on the journey in regards to hiring. Yeah, in terms of hiring, I mean, this it's so trite. I almost hate to say it, but hire slow. I mean, like it's it's if there is, I I, I think what I've learned uh, over time, you know, both working for other people and running Beam, is that if there is any red flag, any little voice in the back of your head saying, this might not work out because of this. It is almost certainly an intelligent little voice in the back of your head that's trying to tell you uh, something that you want to reject. And it is, there's so much pressure to hire. You know, you get, you get pressure from, from your backers, you feel pressure internally, you feel pressure from your own team because they're all overworked. Uh, you know, you want to get it off your desk because it's a real pain to spend half your day reviewing resumes and talking to people that aren't going to end up joining the company. There's so much pressure to make a quick hire that, you know, you get somebody who's running at 80% in interviews, but there's a couple people who flagged them with a soft no and gave some articulate reasons why that was, you, they're right. Like, they, you know, any, we all default to this bias for getting the hire done. And so if there is any dissent in the ranks, it's probably right uh, that there's a concern there and worth at least running down and probably not making that hire. Is mo this is a, a line. I have one more question on this front. Is most yeah. of your day, um, I guess, I guess now how much of your time is spent hiring or doing anything about, about you know, team building? 
it's a little bit less than it was six months ago for me. And that's partly just because um, we've largely staffed up on the non-technical side of the house at this point. Um, there's a couple hires that I'd like to make, but at the moment I'm personally running sales. Um, I've got a close relationship with a lot of our customers and, and we are looking for somebody on that front, um, but not as actively as we would be if I wasn't able to do it. Um, and most of the hiring that we're trying to do is on the technical side of the house. And so I'm, uh, my co-founder, Andreas, kind of has that role in this. and He's um, pretty extensively involved in it still because we've got smoke and technical roles. Um, my day is uh, impossible to define. Uh, there are days when it's when it's 50% hiring. There's days days when it's 50% sales. Most recently, because I am I'm running our internal sales organization, I've I've spent the majority of my time on sales and customer interactions. Um, uh, we but there have been periods of time where I've spent you know a week on product. I, I, I don't know that I've ever actually had the luxury to spend a single week on anything now that I think about it, but there are, you know, there's different focuses and it ebbs and flows, which is um, all to say that that's what makes it such a fun job. I mean, if you're the sort of person who, who digs days going fast and really enjoys flipping from, you know, a, a, a meeting today with uh, an analyst for industry followed by uh, an outside consultant negotiation over their price to come in and do some work from us, followed by two phone interviews, followed by a bunch of one-to-ones with the team, followed by a soft investor pitch that I just walked back from into a podcast with you. And that's exciting and not terrifying. I mean, this is the job for you. Um, you know, if it, if it is, if you're the sort of person who gets really frazzled, not having time to prep for everything, I think that, um, you know, you're, you're going to want to invest in a, a chief operating officer pretty early on if you're a founder. That last point you make is so funny, uh, just because I feel like I should always prep more for things, but I don't, and I'm just I'm just fine. You know, it just works out, <laughs> which works makes me feel like yeah, it's like <laughs> like if someone asked me like how I don't know how much how, if I should say this, but I, I am like if someone asked me like oh like, how much prep time do you do for every for every podcast guest? I'm like oh like you know. After my six-hour job editing episodes and doing these other things I'm doing, not much. And it, <laughs> I, I, but I think it, it leads to – I kind of prefer that. I kind of like I like. The, I the mean, rawness. for something like this, I, I agree. I mean, this is – you know, you're running a, a, a business of a sort. It's a conversational podcast. The right approach for this is to have a dialogue with your, with your interviewees. And while I'm probably a terrible interviewee because I just talk all the time, uh, you know, I think you've got a nice touch with these things. And so, um, yeah, keep at it. It's working well, Matt. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. It's been fun. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, two years ago, you look at podcasts and you're like, oh, that's cool. Maybe I could start one. But then you realize, like, it's actually not that hard to start a podcast. It's like super easy. Um, but I, I got one one last question for you before we wrap it up. You, you know, you're, you're growing this company, Beam, you it's and and you're running sales. You, you just mentioned that you're that you're hiring for someone on that end. So I want to give you an opportunity to make any ask that you have of the forward-thinking founders community. You got all these people listening, ready for this question. So how can this community help you? Well, we've already mentioned the fact that we might be looking for somebody to work out in the sales department. So I'm not going to focus on that. Um, I, I, what I would say is anybody out there who is running a company where you move money, um, and that could be a company that 
you know, moves money from customers to people who walk dogs at, you know, X dollars per hour, platform economy companies. If you're thinking about that or you are working with a bank uh, in a banking partnership, you are either starting to have this little concern about compliance that won't go away. Uh, you're starting to get pressure from a, a, a banking relationship or a payment processor relationship where they'd really like to you talk to somebody over in their compliance department. You keep putting it off. Your investors in the last round of diligence ask what you were doing about licensing and whether you were going to be licensed and you kind of punted it and you're wondering if you're going to need to. Uh, I'm happy to talk to you, um, both as a subject matter expert and because I think the software that we've produced at Beam is perfectly situated for a company in your position. So if you're growing something that moves money, um, I, you know, reach out. Uh, I, I am an attorney. I've done this for big and small tech companies. I'm happy to just give you some free advice. Um, but if you're also willing to take a look at a demo and see if Beam might be the right fit to help solve your problems, I'd be delighted to spend some time with you from that perspective, too. That's a nice ask, Matt. And I'm always happy uh, that you do that. Yeah, appreciate it. And I mean, if, if anyone listening feels like they, uh, you know, they're interested in, in chatting or taking you up on that, where can they find your company, Beam? Where can they find you? You know, how can they get in touch? I'm Peter Ansky on Twitter. Um, we've got links out there, though, that are easier to spell uh, everywhere at beamsolutions.com. Um, you can also connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm fairly responsive to requests. And if you mention uh, Forward Thinking Founders, I'll um, certainly prioritize that. Cool. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on to the podcast and jamming for a little under an hour on all things tech, all things fintech and all things beam. So thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And best of luck on your journey to build an awesome company or continue to build an awesome company. Thank you so much, Matt. It was a blast talking to you and um, best of luck with the, the daily feed. I think it's a terrific podcast. and I wish you all the luck in the world. Thank you so much.